welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and can you believe it? This show is entering its second spooky season. To kick off Halloween month, I've corralled a guest whose book is getting a ton of pre-release hype as the latest literary equivalent of Get Out. It's James Han Matson, and the book in question is Reprieve. Out on October 5th from Bloomsbury and William Morrow, and all I can say is believe the excitement, but not necessarily in the way you expect. On the surface, Reprieve is the perfect book for Halloween. It takes place in an extreme, full-contact, escape-room-come-haunted-house attraction, the kind that America does so well and that we here in the UK look at with both envy, confusion, and a very British sense of why in God's name would you do that to yourself? Extreme haunts may sound suitably horrific, but as you'll hear James and myself discuss at length, it's actually far from where the true darkness lies in Reprieve. Instead, James delivers a social horror story that offers a commentary on the violent harm caused by prejudice in so many ways. Consequently, this is one of the heavier chats I've had on Talking Scared, and full admission, I'm not sure I was quite on my A-game here, to be honest. You can decide for yourself, but I asked a couple of questions that are well-intentioned but poorly expressed. Now, I've left them in because it seems like cheating to edit out all of my mistakes. Believe it or not, I'm not actually this perfect. (laughs) James was really generous in allowing me the time and space to dig myself back out of the hole just as I was about to hit magma. Like I say, I'll let you decide for yourself, but if this is your first sample of Talking Scared, perhaps don't judge the show by the next hour of inarticulation. (laughs) As ever, I'm droning on, which is another thing to be avoided for new guests. Let's go. Come with me to a ramshackle house on the edge of town. Pay your money, take your ticket, and check your privilege at the door. Let's talk scared. Hi James, and welcome to Talking Scared. Hello, how's it going? Very well. I um, I always start these conversations the same way, so how are you and where are you? Uh, I'm pretty good. Uh, I'm actually in Grand Forks, North Dakota right now. I've been here for about a year. So um, yeah, kind of cold tundra snowy area. Is it cold tundra snowy at the moment or are you getting some kind of summer? No, we have like an actually, uh, the summer is actually pretty decent because it's so cold in the winter, but the winter usually lasts from October to like May. So (laughs) yeah, it's a a long winter. Yeah, I'm in the north of England. It's not that dissimilar. Yeah. It's quite funny. No matter how I start these conversations, it always starts with an update on the weather from wherever we're talking (laughs) to people. Um, But let's get, let's go on about talking about books, what we're here for. So you're here yeah. to talk about Reprieve, your new novel, your second novel. Uh-huh. I'm delighted to have you on the show. One, just to meet you. That's always nice. And two, because Reprieve seems to be created specifically for the purpose of generating conversation. Yeah, it does seem to be generating some sort of conversation. Um, I mean, that's what I wanted it to do. So if that's what it's doing, uh, that's like great. Well, the last book we had on the show that was this weighted with, I don't know, social relevance was Zakia Delila Harris's The Other Black Girl. Right. Okay. 
And it actually feels like there's a number of connections between your novel, Reprieve, and hers, not least the interrogation of race and the dangers of taking whiteness as the default. And then you add in kind of conversations around sexuality and the very concept of why we like horror. And it all makes for quite a noisy book club meeting. Yeah. So I've kind of set the framework there and hopefully that's frightened off any remaining bigots. Maybe <laughs> listening. Um, but over to you, first of all, James. So give us an idea of what Reprieve is about. All right. So uh, just plot wise, uh, Reprieve is about this place called the Quigley House, which is a uh, full contact haunted escape room attraction in Lincoln, Nebraska. Um, and uh, it, on in the late 90s, um, four people uh, are contestants of this um, haunted escape room attraction. Um, and I should say, if you if you win, uh, if you get through six cells, is what I call them, um, you uh, win a cash prize. Uh, so a lot of the book talks about the characters that go through the the cells and also just what led them to this particular place. I mean, thematically, uh, there's a lot going on, as as you said. Uh, there's um, the frank discussion about uh, racial fetishism um, and hate politics and, um, you know, misogyny. Uh, and all of that is kind of wrapped up in this this story about this haunted escape room attraction. So, yeah, that's kind of uh, a short version of what it's about. Well, that's, yeah, that's the elevator pitch. And, it, and basically, I can't remember the last time I read a book, certainly for this show, where the, the elevator pitch does such disservice to the substance <laughs> of the novel. It, it's a book very much at first glance, of two halves so on on the one hand it's a horror novel about an extreme kind of haunted attraction on the other as you say it's a novel of social realism and personal politics and i described it recently as as what would happen if jonathan franzen wrote the movie saw oh (laughs) but it it is much more readable than jonathan franzen so no one need worry I feel like we could easily spend the entire conversation talking about, you know, race and sexuality and discrimination and and politics and end up neglecting the more generic horror aspects. And I I do have a commitment to my listeners to give them some blood. Absolutely. Let's hit that side of it first. Sure. So to kick off, I suppose, where did you get the idea to write about an extreme haunted attraction? I mean, this was just uh, me going down the rabbit hole of YouTube videos I, I love watching horror trailers. I like to see what's, uh, what's coming out. Um, and as you know, if you, if, you, if you watch YouTube videos, there's a whole uh, suggested list on the sidebar. And so I was watching uh, you know, some sort of horror trailer one day, and on the sidebar came this video for a full contact uh, haunted house. I wasn't really familiar that much with with full contact haunted houses, um, so I clicked on the video and I you know, I just watched the I, I watched the movie, which horrified me. Um, but because it horrified me, I also became obsessed with it, and so I just did a whole bunch of research on you know these full contact haunts, and I realized that these were a huge thing there um there's this huge underbelly of like people who love to go to places where they 
uh, essentially get mauled by other, by the other actors. Um, sometimes they pay, sometimes they don't. For most of them, you do pay. Um, but I just found that fascinating. It's uh, people often ask me like, "Is it something that I've done?" And I my response to that is absolutely not. There's no way that I would go to some of these places. I mean, it it just yeah, I just can't fathom it. So I guess because I can't fathom it so much, I was. I, I was really interested in studying it, I guess. Um, and yeah, that's where the, that's where the idea of, of the full contact escape room attraction in the book started. Um, I also worked for a couple summers for these guys um, in, in Maryland. They owned a winery, but they also had owned uh, a haunt um, and they were starting their own, they were starting another haunt in like the fields of Western Maryland. And, you know, they gave me some, uh, really valuable information on like how to start a haunt, like what, what goes into it, some of the tricks involved, some of the illusions. Uh, and that was really, that was really great. I mean, it was really wonderful to get that information. It was just so interesting. Mm -hmm. It was, I mean, I, I've, uh, I've liked these things for a long time, but it's never been something that I've been obsessed with until like the last, you know, few years. Um, so yeah, that's where it's kind of, that's where it kind of started. So you didn't feel the need to visit one of these things as kind of research? No, I mean, I've talked, I talked to proprietors of them, yeah. um, but I did not want to, to do it myself. It's not, it's not something that I, I, I am like interested in putting myself into. Is the Quigley House your your full contact home in the book? Is is that based on the infamous McCamey Manor by any chance? Did that <laughs> factor into your uh, your research? Well, to, uh, to be honest, I don't know how much I can talk about like the specifics of of that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it, it's <laughs> it's based on a number of of full contact haunts that I um, researched. Uh, and yeah. of course that was, that's the big one, you know, that's one of the most controversial. Um, and so, yeah, I, of course I looked into it a bit. Yeah. Cause I've been fascinated for years about this stuff. Cause like you, I, I would never go to one. I can't even play scary video games because I'm too much, you know, the minute I'm in the driver's seat, as opposed to just passively taking right. in the media, I become terrified. So if I was actually walking through. I just couldn't mm -hmm. do it. But, I mean, you read about the McKinney Manor and some other ones, and, and it, there's a part where it tips over from really having nothing to do with traditional scares. It's got nothing to do with what we would think as the aesthetics of horror, and it becomes more kind of genuine torture and, and people being waterboarded and forced to right. drink things and they don't know what they are and they're bound and gagged. And it sounds more like Abu Ghraib than a, than a Hammer Horror movie. You know what I mean? It, it, yeah, I don't, I don't really get it, um, but they are interesting. Right. I, I think that's an interesting point to make. And I think like um, there's just two very separate types of people who like these things. I think the people who do uh, like the full contact and the, and I'm talking about like extreme full contact aren't particularly the type of people who go to, you know, just these, you know, like someplace like not scary farms or something, mm -hmm. you know, they're two very different types of people. Um, and I thought that that's really interesting. I think when you go into a place like, you know, not scary farms or, or, or another place that's, that's just not that you're, you know, you're not going to be touched. There's this sense of safety that you feel. I mean, it's almost like the outside world 
um, kind of melts and you are in this place that's supposed to give you scares. But since you know that all the scares are manufactured, you sort of feel weirdly safe, you know? Um, whereas like if you know that somebody can actually touch you and can actually hurt you, that's a different mindset. That's a different psychology. That's what I was, um, you know, sort of researching for this. Yeah. We don't have these places in the UK that much. We have yeah. one or two dotted around, but nothing like they have in America. Um, right. I think it might be because we, we only play at Halloween, whereas you guys kind of go all in. I, I was in America yeah. once at Halloween. I was like, my God, the entire country becomes a theme park. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, I, I, the, 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 there is a town near me in, in the north of England called Blackpool. It's probably Britain's most famous seaside town. And I went to one of these things there at the theme park there. Um, and it was all, it was quite kind of hokey. And I remember it was all themed around, every room was a different horror movie. And I was there mm. with with some girls I wanted to impress. Um, and I was kind yeah. of at school. I was the horror dude. I'd, I'd seen every horror movie. I was the nerd from Scream who knows the rules. Yeah. You know what I mean? Right. We walk, I remember we walked into this room and this, what I thought was an animatronic doll, because it looked animatronic. Its eyes flashed and it looked mechanical. It was The Exorcist. It was Regan from The Exorcist. And mm -hmm. you had to walk around the bed to get beyond her. And I kind of cockily went, oh, God, it's just a doll. And sort of walked round her, and the quote, just a doll, leapt out of the bed and grabbed my ankles. Uh. I didn't see any more of the of the rooms because I sprinted all the way <laughs> to the finish line. Yeah, and after that, <laughs> yeah. I just thought, never, never, ever again. Right. But it, it's interesting you say there are two kinds of people who take part in these kind of things. You know, um, because one of the the real issues that that reprieve kind of hits head on is, you know what is horror and why do we want it or desire it or, you know, get involved with it? And, you know, early on, for example, one character declares that horror is a test. It shows us who we are. And later, a self-proclaimed expert on haunted attractions says that terror of that kind is therapeutic. And it feels like in this book, quite beyond the kind of the social and political issues, it, it it feels like you are trying to work on a thesis of why we subject ourselves to fear, whether it's movies or haunts or even books like your own. And I wonder, do you have any kind of conclusion? Yeah, I mean, I think some of the stuff that, that the characters talk about is true. I think like when we're talking about it's two separate people that go into these different types of haunts, I think the people who do the more extreme see it more as a challenge, you know, see it more as like, I need, I want to be able to get through this. I want to be able to overcome this. And at the end, I'm going to feel so amazing because I've like accomplished something. Like the, the first one you mentioned, uh, as far as like fear is entertainment. I think that's, that's more of what I think about when I think about horror. I think like the reason that we, that we, um, we gravitate towards horror is um, first of all, because it's an escape, but secondly, because um, there's some sort of authenticity that comes with horror. I think like trying to manufacture like fear is more difficult than manufacturing other emotions. And I think when you're faced with, you know, a threat to your life, that's when, that's when we actually see a real person emerge. Like when, when like a monster is like chasing you or when a serial killer is on the loose, um, that's when like what we're made of comes to the fore. And 
that's something that's always fascinated me about horror is because like, I feel like we go through life sort of pretending all the time, um, pretending, uh, you know, in certain situations to be a certain way. But when we're faced with, uh, you know, abject terror, there, that pretending just stops and we have to like figure out what we're made out of. And so that's kind of what drew me to the genre when I was younger, at least, is just that authenticity of emotion. So are you a fan of, of horror and horror fiction? I was a fan of horror when I was growing up, more so than I am today. It's not that I'm not a fan of horror today, um, but it was definitely instrumental for me growing up. It was something that I... Um, it was something where I could escape into and and not have to like think about the life that I was living. So yeah, I mean, I definitely like horror now, but I would say like mm-hmm. it was much more of a of a of a thing for me when I was younger. Okay, I mean this this is perhaps a personal question. I, I don't I don't mean to be rude, but you know, no so you you were you were born in Seoul, yeah, in in South Korea, and. Um, adopted by an American family in Dakota, I believe. Yep, North Dakota, where I am right now. I'm getting all this from from the blurb of your 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 author bio. Was there any element to which you think horror, as an American art form, was I don't know a, a way of understanding America or a way of fitting in, or you know, was it a community thing? Because it, it, you mentioned Stephen King a lot in your books, and I it feels like Stephen King is the all-American writer in many ways. I wonder whether it was a tool in that way. Like for me to understand America? Yeah, it, just just a kind of an American experience because it seems like American Gothic is the literature of America in many ways. Um, and I just wondered as, as somebody who was learning the culture, um, perhaps, like was it was, did horror provide a tool in that way? Well, I'm not sure if I was learning the culture so much because I was, I came to the States when I was three. So it wasn't like, it wasn't like I had to learn a culture. I was just kind of, um, you know, this was my culture. I mean, I was, I was, I was certainly American. Um, But I will say something about uh, particularly Stephen King books. What Stephen King books did for me when growing up is um, they put the outsider uh as the main character he often put outsiders as main characters and like you know i was an asian kid in north dakota and like i was one of the only ones in the entire state you know um and so i certainly felt like an outsider growing up and to be able to read stories about you know outsiders overcoming these horrors was like really important to me i think that's another reason i guess i gravitated towards him in particular it's quite clear that you that you have some kind of traction with King because he, one of your characters in, in this novel, Kendra, is a she's always yeah. reading him, and the, the the very book opens with um, a, a reference to Pet Cemetery, right. and it, it, it's a weird one because as I went along, I kind of got a different understanding, but the, the book opens with Kendra reading Pet Cemetery and taking issue with a particular phrase in the book, and I remember thinking on page one, wow. That is bold, like opening your horror novel with a critique of King. I thought that that is quite the statement of intent. Um, but actually, it seems to be a more a, a more loving kind of relationship as the novel continues. Yeah, definitely. I mean, like there are references to Stephen King throughout the book, um, and I hope that you know those those references are 
done in like a relatively loving way because I have nothing but love for for the author. Um, but yeah, I remember that particular scene in Pet Cemetery, and I remember thinking about it a lot. I remember thinking it was like a very gross image. Um, and so because it was such a gross and startling image, I, you know, examined it a bit. And so that's, that's just how that came about. Mm -hmm. And then I, I was actually quite gratified to see a, a few pages later that the same character is talking about King and, and she makes this comment. She says all of his best novels are actually love stories. Now, yeah. I felt incredibly vindicated. So my listeners have heard me say numerous times on this show that I don't think King is really often writing horror. I think he's delivering other things via horror. Um, so, but, so, but as well as feeling vindicated by that comment, it also struck me that you're doing exactly the same thing in Reprieve. You are, you're using, it seems to me, horror as a vehicle for these broader social discussions. Um, and I wondered whether, are you really interested in the horror itself or is it, is it primarily, primarily a vehicle and a scenario for these things you want to lay bare? Am I interested in horror? I mean, I'm interested in horror in the sense that, um, you know, in sort of what I was talking about mm -hmm. as far as how I see horror, um, and like what horror means to me. Sorry, I'll re I'll, I'll rephrase the question. What I mean is, are you as interested in in the horror elements of your of reprieve, or is it a vehicle for the things you really want to talk about? I would say. I mean, putting it that way, I would say it was. It's the latter. I'm uh, I'm interested in the, in the horror elements as they serve the story. You mm -hmm. know, um, I'm much more interested in general in talking about the themes that emerge from this from the book um and i think you know some people might take issue with that and i think a lot of people actually have already uh because it's not sort of the book isn't like this unrelenting gore fest you know there's i mean a, a lot of the book is is uh character study you know and with that character study comes a lot of you know the emergent themes that i was talking about so yeah i mean just uh to answer that question um i started the book with wanting to talk about the themes that are present in the book. And um, because I was sort of obsessed with this full contact haunted uh, attraction stuff that I was like researching, I, I did use that more as a vehicle to talk about this stuff. Right. Yeah. Because I mean, I, I wrote a review recently of, of reprieve for the magazine room org. Um, I think it's coming out in the November issue. And, and I kind of in the review to try and, and, and set that tone that you know, don't come into this thinking it is a a novel that is reveling in the, the horror of things inside the house. Because, right. of course, as we know, the, the terrors of the Quigley house are entirely artificial. And, and yeah. that's an unusual prospect for a horror novel because it forces us to, from the outset, to dismiss the blood and the gore and the gruesomeness that would normally be the very meat of the story. But right. in, in your novel, they are quite literally just set dressing. Right. Um, and so far, I've been suggesting in some ways that the horrors inside the house and the events outside the house are different things. But I, I get the feeling that you consider the stuff happening to your characters in their everyday lives to be the real source of discomfort. 
Yeah, that's exactly what I think. It's the source of their own private horrors, you know. Um, the stuff that happens inside the Quigley house is manicured and synthetic, and and we all know that. I mean, I show you, you know, I show you that in the book. Um, but the stuff that's happening outside of the house um, is it's what is essentially the true horror. It's it's a weird thing though to come to the novel as a an ostensible horror fan. I mean, I, yeah. I I get very quickly tired by people discussing what is and what is not horror. I mean, it's a conversation that endlessly rolls on on Twitter um, yeah. with increasingly rolled eyebrows. Right. But it's a weird thing to come to a book where all of the, the nastiness, the, the, the stuff that is overt, you're kind of forced to dismiss it and kind of go, well, that's 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 not scary. So right. it's it's quite a strange book to have a relationship with as a as a horror fan because you've got to look beyond where you think the nastiness really lies. Yeah, I, I've teed us up there. So let let's get into the actual the stuff that is you know the real source of horror, as you said. Often, most novels focus on singular social issues, so race, gender, sexuality, class. You know, what what struck me so much about Reprieve is that you you seem to actively address the importance of intersectionality. So yeah. the idea that different identity groups have overlapping disadvantages, that seems to be a core theme of, of what's going on. Yeah, I would say that. I mean, uh, I started the book thinking that I wanted to write about racial fetishism. And when you're talking about racial fetishism, there's definitely intersectionality that goes into that. Uh, because you're talking, you, I mean, you talk about misogyny, you talk about sexuality, you talk about race, all of that, like, intertwines. Okay, so before I carry on with my questions, you've said something really interesting there. So racial fetishizing. I read your essay in which you talk about this, but for the benefit of my listeners, can you elaborate on that a little bit? What what you mean by that and how it fats into your novel? Um, yeah, so I wanted to, I mean, that's how the novel sort of started, because I wanted to write about this idea of racial fetishism. And I hadn't really, uh, I hadn't really read anything in fiction um, on racial fetishism. I mean, some books had touched on it, but like I hadn't really read a book that kind of centered around it. And so I was just like, well, I'm going to, I'm going to do this. And so uh, um, where racial fetishism was on such brazen display was in Thailand. And so I uh, decided to set a lot of the book in Thailand. I mean, a lot of, a lot of this stuff, uh, a lot of the earlier stuff that took place in Thailand got chopped. So not as much takes place in Thailand anymore. Racial, racial fetishism is essentially a horror in that it's dehumanizing. And I think horror in, in general, like strips the humanity from people. So if you're entertained by someone, you know, getting stabbed or beaten or whatever to death, you can kind of like strip away some of the humanity of that person and just sort of be entertained by it. Um, and in order for you to be entertained by it, you have to strip away the humanity of the person. Otherwise it gets too horrific, I guess, in general. And racial fetishism in the same way, it just happens to be about love, not you know, terror. So it's like you are stripping away the humanity of a person and you're, you're, you're essentially quote unquote, loving someone based on a bunch of preconceived ideas of the person, which um, for the most part are usually untrue. Uh, so that, that is sort of the idea behind racial fetishism that I wanted to, to get across in the book. Um, and it happens, you know, a number of times um, in between the characters. 
Mm. And it, it happens kind of both ways. So right. JD, one of your, mm-hmm. um, the main kind of foursome, has strong feelings for an American gap year teacher who comes to Thailand and he, he right. follows him to America and wholeheartedly yeah. embraces this idea of whiteness as an aesthetic. Right. Uh, and at the same time, you've got Leonard, who we won't go into too much to save spoilers, but he goes to Thailand and falls in love with this sex worker called Boonsri. Um, and, you know, again, it, it's that obsession based upon, as you say, a certain idea of otherness. Right. But then there's the flip side. And there's where one character says to JD that he will never find him attractive because he's just not into Asian guys. Right. And what I think you do really well is, particularly to, to me as, as, a, as a, a, a white male, is you you say that thing that at first sounds wholly reasonable. Of course you're allowed to have, you know, opinions based on aesthetics. You know, you, you can... But then the more you tie into it, you realise that actually what he's saying is, I don't find what I think you are attractive. Right. And it's the idea of what you think an Asian person is. So, and and that it's yeah, it's that thing where you forced me to really rethink something that, at surface value, felt quite a reasonable position, and then more and more I realized wasn't right. I mean, yeah. So this is something that I just think about all the time, just because you know I was adopted from Korea to this very white place in North Dakota. Mm-hmm. I was raised by white people. Um, you know, for a long time, I thought of myself as white. Um, and so I just considered that I considered anybody I was with, um, you know, they would be, they would be white. That should be, you know, my attraction. Um, so it took a long time for me to just come to terms with the idea that I wasn't white, which is, which is a very weird experience for someone who is not white, you know, um, to come to terms with the fact that they aren't the race that they always kind of sort of thought they were and what it actually means to be Asian. And then like, um, how other people put these preconceived ideas about you just based on physical characteristics. Um, so yeah, it's something that I definitely wanted to t- talk about in the book. And going back to, you know, intersectionality, which is the word I find very difficult to say, <laughs> I said, it's a novel that's about that. It's, in, to my mind, it's, it's also a novel that's about the failure of intersectional alliances, because mm. if there is a monster in this book it's the kind it's the white mainstream or it's the idea of whiteness as the mainstream Um, and the way that the danger of treating whiteness as a default how that enables people to splinter alternative minorities and weaponize them against each other right that's what it felt was very much at play yeah and i think that's something that needs more discussion um and so I hope, I'm, I mean, I'm glad that that got across in your read. I think um, like with JD in general, like he thinks of whiteness, I mean, he associates whiteness with power and wealth, even though maybe that's not conscious. Um, he's sort of taken in by a whole bunch of media saturation. Um, and uh, this is, this sort of develops his, you know, like yearnings, you know, which is fascinating, I think. Um, 
And so he, he sees himself as somebody who should be in a relationship with a white person. And because he, he sees himself as someone who sort of reveres this idea of whiteness, um, he doesn't, he can, he always aligns himself with whiteness and doesn't really see how, how the idea of whiteness actually hurts people um, like, like Brian, you know, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, that's. Uh, I, I mean, I'm, I'm glad you know you you read it that way. Yeah. To explain, JD is a gay Thai um, exchange student, a foreign student, uh, who is a roommate with Brian, who is a, a young black man in America. Yeah. I said that you know whiteness is the monster in this story, but it it it's a kind of vacant monster because in this story, in which s- several awful things happen. The most fraught chapters are the ones in which JD and Brian basically fall out and they mm. have these really tense conversations about their respective otherness. Yes. Um, and they're full of really, you know, troubling racial slurs and racial stereotypes and, and things that are said that hit really differently coming from non white characters. But what's bitterly ironic is that you could feel the white power structures moving them like chess pieces. There is no white person in the situation, but the white person who isn't there still has all the power in weaponizing these people against each other. Right. And then not to give too much away, but then you do have a white character that, that comes to the forefront, which is John who Mm -hmm. ends up sort of becoming that, you know, um, I guess that symbol uh, of whiteness that illustrates exactly what you're talking about. I wonder, I, I haven't read much press um, because I was writing my own review. I, I try not to read too much. How much, right. I, I'm guessing, have there been comparisons to Get Out? Um, yes, with a this lot. Book? Yeah. Yeah. And how do you feel about that? Um, I think it's fine. I mean, I, I, I love the movie Get Out. Um, I love what you know, Jordan Peele did with the, with that. I mean, using sort of like we were talking about horror as a vehicle to talk about these very um, mm. problematic things. Uh, I don't think, I mean, that that's where it ends though. I mean, I think the, the things that, I, I mean, I, it's been put into this category of social horror and I think they're both, that's absolutely true. I think they're both, you know, put into that category like horror used as a vehicle to mm-hmm. um, discuss these uh, issues of social uh, injustice. I don't know. I mean, like we, we do it, we come at it in different ways. Uh, I mean, the, the book comes at it different ways than get out. Um, but yeah, I can see the comparison and I, I find the comparison, you know, great. I, I mean, because I love it. Well, yeah, I think the reason I'm asking is because I think, the comparison between Get Out and Reprieve is actually justified um, because they, 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 they are both texts that are about quite specific, nuanced white exploitation. Um, right, yes. You know, it's, it's, it's a bodily thing. It's a science fiction bodily thing in Get Out and it's something very different in, in, um, in your book. But it's, you know, this Machiavellian plot that we won't give away. Um, 
but I just find that the, 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 I'm finding the Get Out comparisons a little bit trite now. Like the whole the Candyman film came out, and the first one on the poster is right. this year's Get Out. It's like why? Because it's got a black <laughs> guy in it. You know, I just yeah. think it's it's getting a bit far now. It doesn't. Not every story that's about somebody who isn't white warrants a Get Out comparison, but I do think that yours does because of what I just said. It's, it's an, the book is all about exploitation in its various forms. Right. Um, yes. And it comes to that awful kind of inevitable conclusion at the end. Um, yeah. So to move on a little bit, because I'm always I'm worried about giving things away. Um, I haven't read your first novel, The yeah. Lost Prayers of Ricky Graves, though I am going to. Um, but you mentioned Outsiders as being a thing that you really like to make Stephen King's work. And, and as I say, I haven't read The Lost Prayers of Ricky Graves, but I've read a lot about it. And... It's about a young gay man who, who in despair kills his friend and himself, from what I gather. Um, right. And thinking about that, and thinking about the character of JD, who we'll get into in a moment, it, it suge- suggests to me that you see prejudice and discrimination as something that not only victimises people, but actually makes them dangerous. Oh. Um well, it certainly made um, Ricky Graves dangerous. Um, I uh, I don't know if it makes people in general dangerous. I don't. I mean, I don't. I hope I don't. You know, have that sort of. Thesis. No, sorry. Yeah, I've asked a ridiculous question there. What I mean is, as well as victimizing people, you force someone into a corner through any form of discrimination, and you leave them less and less options with how to conduct themselves, and and eventually it always goes to a bad place certainly in terms of the character of Leonard or certain things that JD does in this novel, it feels like their mistreatment ends up being passed on. Yeah. I mean, these both situations with Ricky Graves and and Reprieve are um, intense and extreme situations. And I would hope that, you know, I mean, you know, people live every day as marginalized people and we essentially just deal with it and we and and we try to educate and we try to um use our art to express it um and 99.99 percent of us just do fine with that but there is that you, you know there is that 0.001 percent of people who um who snap because it because of uh i guess the uh the pressure of like love like living with this every day is pretty pretty difficult or, or too too difficult and there's usually other things going on not just like you know huge societal um things that are that are they're pressing down on them it could be like personal things going on as well where they do um end up you know snapping and, and doing something pretty violent um in general though i think uh most of us are not you know most of us are not going to do the, the things yeah. that my characters do you know yeah i hope yeah. not <laughs> well there, there's always there's a, there's a built-in um kind of grandiosity because it's fiction i mean yeah I'm, I'm not trying to make the really the claim for real life i'm more talking about characterization right to to kind of get towards the end i wanted to talk a little bit about character because sure. we talked about the big themes and we talked about in like you know the issues but we haven't really explored the individual characters there's there's a there's a lot of characters in this book that we could get into but by far for me the most interesting is is jd along with kendra because you've mentioned outsiders those two seem the most ill at ease with who they are yeah yet whereas kendra is easy to root for jd is not an easy guy to like 
No. Can you tell me a little bit about how and why you shaped his character like you did? Um, okay, so when I was in college, I had uh, I went to college in Minnesota. Again, pretty pretty white place. Um, I ended up befriending a large number of international students. Um, and, you know, they were from mostly Asia, mostly all over Asia. Um, and I learned so much about how Asian people in general view America. And it was always surprising to me because I always thought that they had the sort of this very positive image of America. I mean, they obviously wanted to come over here um, and that, you know, America was like the best place on earth. Uh, so to hear some of the stories about what they thought about America once they were here uh, was very eye-opening. Um, and so I wanted to infuse that somewhat into the narrative of, of, of JD. I also had, you know, gay international student friends um, who almost solely wanted to, to find a white, you know, a white partner. Um, and I always found that very interesting too, because they didn't grow up around a lot of white people. So what informed this attraction? Like, why is there, why was there this like major attraction to like, to whiteness? Um, and the more I talked to my friends, the more it became evident that a lot of it was just, you know, media, you know, just this, just media, you know, everywhere, all over the world, sort of anointing white people as like the, the people that are, you know, running the world. And I thought, you know, I, I mentioned this earlier, I thought it was so interesting that that can kind of seep into your sort of biochemical structure and just like make you, you know, desire whiteness um, on a, on a physical level. Uh, so that's where JD came from. I mean, I think a lot of people, a few people anyway, have said that he is not the most sympathetic character. Um, he's not easy to like, kind of like you said. Um, and he's not, I mean, he's sort of, he sort of has this, this obsession that is never going to come to fruition. Mm -hmm. But I wanted that sort of friction to be present throughout the book, because I think that's a very real friction that happens. Um, so if he's not considered, I mean, if he's not a likable character in general, I think uh, that could be the reason why. And, um, you know, I, I don't have a problem with him not being likable. No, not at all. I mean, most it seems to come up every week for me with that I talk about likable main characters and stuff. And I always make the Wolf of Wall Street comparison that if you make a story interesting enough, you don't have to like the main person in it. Yeah. Um, but but JD is just a particularly interesting character because he is so obsessive. And, yes. and there's this kind of dramatic irony where we fully realise that, as you say, they're never going to come to fruition, you know, and it's never going right. to amount to anything. And it's really painful to watch him not just struggle with that, but also to hurt other people on the way and as, as a consequence. Um, yeah. Yeah, and, and going back to those passages with him and Brian where I say it's quite troubling, it's... I do wonder, and this is... I have to be careful I say this. I have to be careful to say exactly what I mean. I do wonder if it's because 
as a white reader, I am habitually now on the lookout for certain forms of prejudice, you know. Um, so if I see certain racial slurs or certain, um, you know, opinions or behaviours in, in media, I have a knee-jerk reaction, you know. And after, yeah. after what happened with Black Lives Matters last year, it is a very, you know, fundamental reaction to certain kinds of racism. And, and when I was reading those kind of di the dialogue between Brian, the, the young black man, and JD, I found myself coming down on Brian's side. And mm -hmm. it, I really sat back and thought about it. And, and I wondered if it's because I was more sympathetic with um, a young black man as someone who was discriminated against over a gay Asian man. And whether whether... Going back to this idea of the mainstream, whether again we've been conditioned to be, you know, park your sympathy in one place, but don't spread it yeah. around. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think the difference also needs to, I, I mean, the, what we need to talk about a little bit is the fact that he's not only a gay Asian, he's not a gay Asian American. He's a mm -hmm. gay Asian international student. He did not grow up in... Um, in America. And so he doesn't have American sensibilities. And so some of the things that he does are not, are going to be considered quite, you know, rude or um, just unseemly as, as an American, but like they're not considered rude or unseemly, you know, in Southeast Asia. Um, and so I, that reading, I mean, I know you're not American, but like a, you know, Western, I guess, ideas of, of what is acceptable. Um, I can see where people bristle a bit at JD because he's not only, you know, you know, this gay Asian kind of awkward weirdo, I guess, in, you know, in the, um, in the West, he's also uh, embodies a culture that, um, you know, it seems a bit foreign. And, and like, you know, I don't, I'm not Thai, you know, I've spent some time in Thailand and I don't, I don't know all there is to know about Thai culture by any means. Um, but I sort of understand uh, his awkwardness with the West, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. Like, and I needed to capture that, like in order to make an, him an authentic character. Yeah, I mean, all of that makes perfect sense. And I, I was aware of that as I was reading it, you know, but it just made, I mean, all the best books are things that make you realize things about yourself, you know. Um, right. And it just made me realize that I, as, as painfully woke as I am, and as this show every week kind of is evidence of, as, you know, painfully fucking Guardian reader that I am, um, <sighs> it, it made me realize that there were, there were limits to my automatic sympathy. And I found that uh -huh. troubling. I found it troubling that I judged prejudice on different levels depending who was the target because that is a troubling yeah. thing that because that shouldn't be that way you know we should yeah it, it, it should be a binary state not not there shouldn't be gradations between who is more worthy of sympathy in that situation so yeah i mean i'm always up for a book that makes me think and makes me worry about things like that i sort of understand where you're coming from with that particular with the uh the friction between brian and jd and like sort of um, automatically siding with someone like Brian because like JD is saying some things that are like extremely offensive, you know, right. and he's saying and doing things that are extremely offensive because he's clouded by this idea of, of whiteness as superior, you know? Right. Um, 
And so once that, that veil is lifted, you know, JD realizes, you know, not to give too much away, but JD will Mm -hmm. realize, um, exactly what he said and how offensive it is, you know, but in that moment, yeah, I think you're absolutely right to like, to side with Brian because of what JD has done and said. See, I don't know if I, I don't know if I agree that I should side with Brian. I feel like I've in some way made too, uh, automatically like too automatic a, an assumption, you know, because Brian says one thing where I mean, I'm a bit uncomfortable saying it, but Brian calls JD a Twinkie because it, you know, right. the, the yellow on the outside, white on the inside and stuff. And, and that's obviously a, a twist on a, on a typical kind of slur that's thrown at, at black people. Um, mm-hmm. And I, yeah, and I, I, I feel now afterwards, I should have been as horrified by that as if it had been vice versa, but I wasn't. Um, so yeah, mm-hmm. I just, it, it was, it was food for thought basically. But you said there, I mean, before I dig myself any deeper, um, let's move on finally. You, you said there yeah. that, um, you know, JD does realize some things. Um, and th- I'm going to do this in a very spoiler-free way. At the very end, Jamie, JD meets up with someone only to be rejected, to be unforgiven. And yeah. rather than moving on, he, he thinks to himself that maybe someday that person will be able to forgive him. And that could be read as a hopeful outcome. You know, tomorrow's mm-hmm. another day, Scarlet, etc. But in light of JD's past flaws, in particular the fact that those flaws are based in, in this obsession, it felt like JD was still stuck in this hopeless cycle. And he wasn't mm. ever going to free himself from this thing he was chasing, which is, at the end of the day, to fit in. Am mm. I right there, or have I taken too nihilistic a view of the, this book? I wouldn't say that you're right or wrong. I mean, I did want to infuse the the final few pages with a bit of hope uh, because there is a lot of, um, I mean, the book is pretty heavy as you know. Um, And so (laughs) I wanted those few last few pages to have, uh, you know, a bit of a, uh, an idea that there could be, there could be something um, good that happens. Uh, So um, I, I didn't particularly think, the I didn't go the nihilistic route when I was writing it, but I can see how it's how it could be read that way. Mm. I often find myself asking people whether there's hope at the end of their books because I think I must be a quite a hopeless person. I, I always seem to take <laughs> yeah. it negatively. <laughs> but yeah, as you say, it is a very very heavy book, and it's it, it yeah. I think I said it best at the start when I said that it, it's a book where there's a massive gulf between it's elevator pitch and what it's really about and what it really contains. So I'm still right. thinking about it. And and just writing a review of it was hard because trying to condense all of this into a few paragraphs. And have you been happy with the early response to it so far? Um, yeah. I mean, the response has been uh, good for the most part, There's but it's also been very mixed. And I think like um, people might come at this book thinking one way, uh, thinking – uh, like uh, we're talking about the elevator pitch and thinking that is what the book is going to be and not really be prepared for like the heaviness of it, like we we're talking about. Um, and so that is something just, uh, you know, maybe for your readers to keep in mind, like when you come at this, or your listeners, I mean, when you come at the book, it certainly has horror elements in it. 
Um, but it's not, like I said earlier, just this unrelenting, like sort of, you know, gore fest, like um, what you think of as sort of a typical horror novel, I guess. I think if you come at it that way, um, then the reading experience might be different. I've just like, you know, I've read a few, a few reviews, um, like good read reviews where people are sort of like, this is not what I expected. Uh, this is not a thriller. This is not horror. I was just, and I'm just like, I understand why you're saying that, but you know, it's, it's trying to, it's trying to do something that maybe you didn't want to do or you expected it to, to do something else i guess yeah goodreads not really a place known for its nuance or it's um, yeah i try not to read them <laughs> yeah I, I don't even review them i just i list what i've read i don't even review anymore it's just a cesspit it's the only it's the only place online worse than twitter yeah <laughs> well you can do your bit for somebody else here james um if you were to recommend a book for my listeners to read what would it be and why well, since this is um, a horror podcast, I would probably recommend um, my all-time favorite horror novel, which is um, The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson. And I think uh, the reason I would pick that is because, uh, not just because it's one of my favorites, but because it's just like, it's a good example of a haunted house becoming a character. Like I've read, you know, other stories that have haunted houses, but the the house itself didn't didn't take full shape as a character, but in the haunting of Hill house, the house is like an, ex- like an extremely well-crafted character um, that affects all of the characters in the house. Uh, so that is the book I would, I would tell all of your listeners to read. That book got recommended loads in the early days and hasn't been for a while now. So thanks for putting it back in the spotlight. It's uh, yeah, it's one of the all time greats. And, and the film as well. Um, last question, James. Mm-hmm. What truly scares you? Um, <laughs> this is interesting, but um, s- something that truly scares me is uh, fish, <laughs> like the actual animal of fish. And this is like a weird thing because like I grew up in a fishing family. My brother is a fisherman for a living but if you ever look at old pictures of me you know with those fish i'm standing like feet away from the fish because it just <laughs> they just terrify me um i think it's because i've always thought fish are like animals that have no soul they're just like swimming around in these schools until you know they just they die um they look exactly the same dead as they do alive and they just have these eyes that like are just dead to me. I don't know. Fish for some reason. I love to eat fish, but I can't stand like being around them. <laughs> yeah, I, I love when people often I ask that question and people say things like, you know, mortality or the death of my children. <laughs> and then every now and again someone says fish. And it just yeah, that is that's the kind of thing I, I'm in this for. Um my theory on fish is that they don't have eyelids and therefore they are always trying to stare you out and they're asking for what they get. They're cocky. Yeah, <laughs> they're always kind of saying, "Come on, then!" They're just glaring at you. So, yeah, they—they're there for you can do what you want to them. The, the whole vegetarian animal rights thing doesn't apply because they're just too arrogant. That's my theory. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, I mean, what what a better place to leave it than with a, a fear of fish? I, I mean, I've said enough about how why people should read this book. It's it's quite unlike most horror books you'll read. 
if it even is a horror book, you know, that's a conversation to have with yourself. But I think everyone should give it a go and really think about what it makes them think about their own opinions. Um, and I wish you all the best with it. But James, thank you for talking scared. Yeah, thank you for having me. It was fun. Okay, so having listened to that one back, I'm now less inclined to think that James hates me. (laughs) What I remembered as a fraught conversation was actually quite an inspiring dive into all sorts of topics that I have zero experience of, hence my scrambling. To be honest, I I thought it had all gone wrong when I made that quip about comparing Reprieve to Saw being written by Jonathan Franzen, blah-de-blah. I'm not quite sure how James took that one. I can never work out what the world thinks of Franzen, whether you use him as a universal whipping boy or or if we've all gone back to respecting him. I I don't know. If anyone knows the current lay of the land with, with Franzen as cultural barometer, do let me know. Either way, I mean, James was a great sport about it. Just to clarify for a moment, In the slight chance that new listeners think I'm ignorant, I don't think that discrimination turns minorities into dangerous people. It was a stupid way to phrase the question. What what I meant to really get to was whether, when faced with discrimination and oppression, does that affect people's ability to respond in the, quote, normal way? Does it force people outside the so-called social contract? It's an interesting question that I still don't really have an answer to, but credit to James for even trying to engage with the stupid-ass way that I phrased it. Reprieve, though, is quite the book. When I read the phrase, full contact extreme escape room, I was hoping for a kind of blood-splattered gore-fest, because they've actually been pretty thin on the ground this year. In fact, if anyone's listening, please tell me what to go and read to satisfy my actual inner yearnings for mayhem. (laughs) But all of the stuff we talked about, James and I, is deeply fascinating. And it did make me consider my own attitudes and look more closely at my responses. And James creates some really authentic, compelling characters and, and puts them in situations that make your skin crawl, but through awkwardness more than terror or horror. It's a testament to the power of his writing that you are more unnerved by a conversation around a dinner table than you are by scenes of men in clown masks chasing the characters into cages. It was a bit of a shame that James hasn't been to a haunt experience, because I would have loved to know what one is actually like. The McCamey Manor, in particular, sounds like a true hellhole. And if you haven't already heard of that, get to Google. There is a lot of myth and lore surrounding the place, it's, so it's quite hard to tell if the bad press isn't actually some kind of marketing scheme or how much of the extremity is actually real. By all accounts, entrants sign a disclaimer that supposedly opens you up to being beaten, bound, confined, caged, electrocuted, cut, or even having teeth extracted without anaesthetic. A lot of that sounds like a night out on the town where I grew up but at least there you had the promise of beer. There is always this myth circulating that someone may have died during a tour. Now, I imagine that's bullshit, but there's no doubt that the McCamey Manor did inspire Reprise Quigley House. 
never mind how circumspect James may have been about it in our interview. Have any of you been to one of these extreme haunts or, or any kind of haunted house attraction? Because like I said, we, we don't really have them over here in the UK. Our, our versions are quite anodyne, just like our Halloween is a piss poor imitation of the US's pumpkin spice carnival of horrors. If you've been to one, let me know. Oh, and for bonus points, can someone tell me what the hell a haunted hayride is? <laughs> you can get in touch with the usual channels. For newbies, those are email via talkingscaredpod at gmail.com, on Instagram at talking underscore scared underscore pod, or on Twitter. As ever, that one is slightly different. It's talkscaredpod, and that's where I do most of my lurking. Patreon is there for anyone who wants it. Massive thanks to my new subscribers, Narell and LYT. Know that you are appreciated and bask in the respect of your fellow listeners. But seriously, guys, thanks ever so much. Starting at just a few dollars, you can show your support for what I do and help me expand the show. There's extra chat from our guests when I ask them questions about their favourite things and their scariest experiences. The new one's just gone live a few days ago with Rich Chismar, Sarah Flannery Murphy and Zoya Stage. And there's a lot more stuff in the pipeline too, including my comprehensive history of gothic horror. That's a series coming soon. You can sign up for Patreon via the link in the show notes or go direct to patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod. So what else to tell you? Uh, I've been invited on to Slate's Culture Gabfest podcast. They invited me on to talk about my article that I wrote on Final Girls in Horror Fiction. So I'll be giving big props to Stephen Graham Jones and Grady Hendrix. Let's, let's hope that goes well and I don't disgrace our little family. Lastly, I am desperate to get this show noticed in all the Halloween furore. Those lists that they trot out every year, best spooky podcasts for the season, etc. They may be ten a penny, but they do make a difference, I think. So if you know anyone writing one... Tell them about this show or or just scream how much you love it into the social media void. And leave an iTunes review if you can. We've got 43 now and I'd love to get to 50 by October 31st. Okay, so I've spent most of this outro either apologising or begging for stuff. I mean, I'll try and tone that down in future, but... Thanks as ever for listening. Do reach out. Hearing from you guys is still my favourite part of each week that isn't spent with my wife or my dog. Next week, it's Caitlin Starling talking magic and mayhem in the death of Jane Lawrence. Until then, though, play the game well. Don't back down. But for God's sake, know the safe word. Read good books. And remember, it's good to be scared.